0: Good singing tonight. Let's open our Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter number 2 tonight. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. How many of you have ever had a problem? Okay. How many of you have never had a problem? All right. Just a few of you. All right. If you've never had a problem before, then the message tonight may not make much sense to you. But if you have ever had a problem, especially a spiritual problem, then I think the message tonight could be a great help to you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I want to look tonight at verses 24, 25, and 26 on the topic of solving spiritual problems spiritually solving spiritual problems spiritually 2nd Timothy 2 verse 24 says and the servant of the lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men apt to teach patient in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves if god peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray for your help during this time as we look into your word. We know that we need the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to guide us into the truth, and to help us truly understand the instructions of Your Word and put them into practice in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that that would happen as we look at this passage of Scripture. As we consider our role in solving spiritual problems, Lord, that we would put this information and these instructions into action, that we might be a blessing to others And we might glorify your name through it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of 2 Timothy was, as best we can tell, the last book that the Apostle Paul wrote. It was a letter to a young man named Timothy, who was one of Paul's um, young men that he had trained in the ministry. And in this letter, he was giving him some very specific instructions, and really final instructions about doing the work of the ministry. It's one of the pastoral epistles, we call it, because it was instructions given to a young man, younger man, who was in in the ministry of, of pastoring. However, in the book, there are lots of instructions that apply to all Christians. And so don't think that because you may not be a pastor that none of this applies to you. No, it applies to every believer equally, but there's sometimes a special emphasis on the role of a pastor. And such is the, uh, is the case when we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2 in these verses that we've read tonight. As he says to Timothy that the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men. He was addressing a man who was a pastor and so the idea of being a servant of the Lord had a certain significance for him. But what I want you to understand as we begin tonight is that every Christian is a servant of the Lord doesn't necessarily mean only those who are called into ministry for as a full-time occupation or full-time vocation. But every Christian is to be serving the Lord. Romans chapter 12 says we're supposed to be not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And so the instructions that are given here apply to every single Christian. Now, there are a couple of preliminary truths that I want to very quickly go through before we look at the the uh, uh the meat of this text tonight so that so that we're all on the same page in understanding why it's so important. First of all, I want to remind you that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have certain duties to one another. In fact, throughout the New Testament, you find a number of commands to the church that is framed in that language of one another. We're, there's a lot of things that we're supposed to do for one another. We're supposed to be kindly affection to one another. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to show hospitality to one another, and so on and so forth. Well, one of the duties that we have as Christians is to help each other out when there's sin or wrong beliefs. As Christians, we have a duty to confront other Christians in loving rebuke. Turn over to, keep your finger in 2 Timothy 2, and turn to the Old Testament book of Leviticus for just a moment. You know, for a lot of people, they hear the word rebuke, and all of a sudden, the, the, you know, the, the hair stands up on the back of their neck. It's just like, it's it's one of those words that almost instantly puts us on guard. Because none of us likes the idea of being rebuked. And there's just this connotation in our minds that it's always harsh, it's always bad, it's always negative. And I think that's something that ought to change. I think as Christians, we need to realize that rebuke given and rebuke received is actually an expression of love when done correctly. Luke chapter 19, or not Luke, Leviticus, excuse me. Leviticus chapter 19 Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 17. Notice what this verse says. It says, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Now these are connected in thought. These are not two separate commands. This is a connected idea here. When the Lord says... To us as the people of God, though this was written to Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, it also applies to us who are saved, God's people today. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Now, right there, each of us would probably readily agree we understand that, yes, We're supposed to love one another. In fact, we talked about that last Sunday night from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. We have a responsibility to love one another. So when the Lord says, don't hate your brother in your heart, we would easily say, yes, we understand we should do that. But the verse continues on and it says, thou shalt. So here's the positive command. Do not hate your brother, but you shall, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Did you know that refusing to help your brother, your neighbor, a fellow Christian who has sin in their life, refusing to help them is actually an act of hatred? I know we don't think about it like that often. We think at worst it's just neutral. But what this verse is saying here is that it is an act of love to not suffer sin in your neighbor or in your brother. It is an act of love to gently, kindly, and in a Christ-like manner, rebuke them. To rebuke simply means to point out, hey, this isn't right. And to do it for their good, to truly have their best interest at heart. We need to be reminded and understand that tonight. There's a second truth I I want us to make sure we're, we're clear about as we get into this tonight, and that is this. Exhortation and admonition are the responsibilities of the entire body of Christ, not just a select few. Turn with me back to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Exhortation and admonition are the responsibility of the entire body of Christ, not just a select few. Too often we, we have the attitude, well, that's so-and-so's job. Let them deal with it. Let the pastor deal with it. Let the youth pastor deal with it. Let the deacons deal with it. Let the Sunday school teacher deal with it. That's their job. When really, we have a mutual responsibility, all members, to one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 25. Not forsaking the assembling of the, yourselves together as the manner of some is... "...but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." I'll say some more about that word exhorting here in just a minute, but I want to focus at this point on the idea that that is a mutual responsibility. It says exhorting one another. It is not just the pastor's job to stand before the congregation and exhort everybody. It's not just the Sunday school teacher's job to stand before a class and exhort them. It is the responsibility of every believer to be exhorting other believers. It is a mutual responsibility given to the entire body of Christ, not just a select few. See, the temptation is to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and think, well, that's just to pastors. That's just an instruction that pastors should follow. But in reality, it's something that every believer ought to follow for the benefit of all other believers. So with these truths in mind, let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. In this passage, Paul is giving instructions how to help someone who has fallen into sin or wrong beliefs. They are somebody who has been entrapped or ensnared by the devil, he says in verse number 6. Someone who is not currently acknowledging the truth in their beliefs or in their behavior. And what he is writing here are instructions of how to solve that problem. Now understand that this is a spiritual problem. And therefore, the solution is a spiritual solution. I firmly believe that the Bible has the answers for all of those kinds of questions. That there is everything we need in the pages of Scripture to solve spiritual problems. We are reminded in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that our warfare is not a fleshly warfare. It is a spiritual warfare. And therefore, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not as fleshly, that is, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We cannot use man-made weapons to fight a spiritual war. I emphasize that from the beginning here because there is a lot of uh, teaching in Christian circles about how to solve spiritual problems that is nothing more than taking a man-made weapon in the form of modern psychology and trying to use it to solve spiritual problems. Folks, that will never work. Because man's idea of what is wrong on the inside of us is completely different than what God says is wrong on the inside of us. Right, Secular psychologists are going to say, well, the problem is that you had a bad childhood, or the problem is you don't have enough self-esteem, or the problem is this, that, and the other, where God says the problem is sin. And we can't take the world's weapons and try to fight a spiritual battle with it and expect to have victory. So we need to solve these problems spiritually, if we're going to help someone who is entrapped by the devil, who is not acknowledging the truth in their belief or in their behavior, we need to do our part to help them. So the question is, how can we best do that? How can we help those who have erred from the truth, either in doctrine or in behavior? Tonight, I want to give you two simple points. All right. First of all, we're going to talk about the approach to solving spiritual problems. And then number two, we're going to talk about the aim, the goal, what it is we're shooting for. So first of all, let's discuss the approach. What is our approach when solving spiritual problems? Let me give you the simple summary of it, and then we'll break it down in more detail. The simple summary is this. To solve spiritual problems, we must patiently teach the truth. We must patiently teach the truth. So let's look back in our text in verse number 24 once again. 2 Timothy 2 verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that that oppose themselves. There's the approach right there of how to solve spiritual problems. We're going to do some kind of some word studying tonight as we look at the the details here. First of all, notice the command that he gives in this verse when he says the servant of the Lord must not strive. So there's a prohibition here, a negative command. Do not do this. Do not strive, he says. And the idea of the word strive there is to fight and to argue with people. What is it about human nature that so many people just love to fight, love to argue. Now, some people are wired a little differently, and they hate all forms of confrontation. But most people, they don't mind getting in a little bit of back and forth now and then. Especially now that we have social media, and you can do it with almost total anonymity online. I mean, people just argue back and forth about everything. And I, for, I, a long time ago, I decided I'm just not going to get into Facebook arguments. I'm just not going to do it. I'll give my opinion if asked, but you know what? There's probably not going to be a whole lot of... Uh, of uh, uh, it's not going to be worth my time to argue with someone that I may have never met before, maybe on the other side of the planet, and, and I, they're just looking for an argument anyway. But when it comes to us here tonight, when we think about how we're going to help each other solve spiritual problems, we have to get this settled in our our hearts and in our minds. Fighting and arguing do not achieve any good end. Fighting and arguing do not achieve any good end. James chapter 1 and verse number 20 says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Simple statement. And we need to let it sink deeply into our hearts. Because you know what a lot of times happens? We, because we care, because it's a big deal to us, and we're trying to help somebody, when we begin to get a little bit of pushback from them, we push back a little more, and they push back a little harder, and all of a sudden this thing has just snowballed, and it's now this big, ugly argument, and it doesn't achieve anything good. Proverbs 13 or 15, verse number 1, "...a soft answer turneth away wrath." But grievous words stir up anger. We have to be very careful when we're trying to help someone else through a spiritual problem that we do not approach them in a spirit of of wanting to fight, wanting to argue, and and we approach them in that very uh, confrontational in the negative sense and combative kind of a way. Next he says, be gentle unto all men. So here's the flip side. Don't strive, don't argue and fight, but instead be gentle. Now, by the way, this word gentle doesn't mean soft or effeminate or weak, but rather it has the idea of being mild-mannered, of being calm and and of simply treating someone kindly. You're not coming to this person to try and attack them, to try and make them feel bad or to try and score a point you're coming to this person to try and help them because you genuinely want their best interest. That's what you are looking out for. And your whole attitude then should communicate that and how you deal with them. Ephesians 4.32, and be kind one to another. It doesn't say be kind one to another if they're kind to you. It doesn't say be kind one to another if, if everything's cool. It says be kind one to another tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Romans 12, 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Now, you you all know how it is to be on the receiving end of someone's rebuke. You take it much better when that person is treating you with kindness and respect, don't you? But if they come to you angry and they come to you combative... Well, what does that do? That makes you get defensive. And you don't appreciate that. And so it's simply a matter of doing to others as you'd have them do unto you. Be gentle. And notice it says unto all men. And this is in the context of people who are contradicting themselves, people who are opposing the truth, people who are ensnared by the devil. In general, these are people who may not be acting like they ought to act. They may be saying and doing things that really irk you but you still should be gentle to them. Next, it says we're to, be, we're to be apt to teach. Apt to teach. And here's really the heart of how, how we handle this problem. This person's not acknowledging the truth. This person's in the snare of the devil. What they need is to learn or be reminded of what is true. And so if we're going to help them, we have to teach them. We have to instruct them, is the other word that is used in verse number 25, of what and what the truth is. If we take that responsibility to instruct those who oppose themselves, then we have to be prepared to teach the truth. What that means is we, number one, have to know the truth. Number two, we have to be able to help that other person know and understand the truth. You know what this means? It means that we got to be able to do something more than just quote a Bible verse of them. Now, you may not expect to hear me say things like that. But the fact of the matter is that just giving someone a Bible verse and walking away and throwing up your hands may not be the best thing. Give them the Scripture, yes, but then help them to understand it. That's what this verse is saying. Do your part as much as you can to teach them the truth so that they might acknowledge that truth. You have to be apt to teach. Help them understand it. Help them apply it to their specific context. And you know what this is going to mean? It's going to mean a willingness on your part to truly have compassion on that person and sympathize with them. It means you're going to need to listen to them as they tell you what they're going through and try to explain what they're thinking even try to explain why they think they're right when they're actually wrong. But at least you're willing to work with them. You're willing to answer their questions. You're willing to talk to them. You're willing to help them get a better understanding. You know, a lot of times we get frustrated in that process, and we'll go on and talk about that in just a minute. But we get frustrated because, you know, we come in and we think, all right, I can help. You know, God says this, and this is what you should do. And the person says, well, I don't see it that way. And all of a sudden, it's like we had one bullet in our gun, we shot that bullet, now we're done, you know. I don't know what to do. We've got to be prepared to teach them. That means the next truth. Be patient. Be patient. Here's the thing. God's work in a person's life takes time. If I were to ask for a show of hands tonight and say, how many of you respond instantly to the conviction of the Holy Spirit the first time every time? Nobody could honestly put their hand up. Now, God's work in our life can happen very quickly, but rarely does it happen instantly. And never does it happen instantly the first time, every time. God's work takes time. And that means we need to be willing to take the time to work with someone else. Take the time to help them. We need to be patient, the verse says. Why do we have to be patient? Because lies have to be exposed. The truth has to be taught. Faith has to be exercised. That takes time. and We need to, tra- we need to treat them with the kind of patience that God treats us with. 2 Peter 3, 9, "...the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men can count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." God is patient and working with us, To bring us to the acknowledging of the truth, first for salvation and then later through the process of sanctification in our life over and over again. And we need to have that same long suffering, that same patience with each other. If you're around any one person long enough, they're going to do something that aggravates you. Something. I mean, that's just the, the fact of the matter because we live with a bunch of sinners. Look around you tonight. Look at the person next to you on your left. Look at them. Look at the person on your right. All right? Those are sinners. Those are sinners. And when you get home, go in the bathroom, look in the mirror. Guess what? There's a sinner there too. We're all sinners. And unfortunately, that sin sometimes affects other people around us and it makes relationships difficult. It makes things hard. And we can tend to get impatient with each other, especially when we forget that. Be patient. Let me add this, that we need to be patient in drawing conclusions about whatever this problem is a person may be going through. There's always a possibility that there was a misunderstanding, and you got it wrong. You thought something that wasn't the case, and a simple conversation would straighten it out. So be patient in drawing conclusions. Don't answer a matter before you've heard it. Don't rely on gossip. Don't rely on hearsay. Proverbs 18, 13, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it's folly and shame unto him. Talking about the approach to solving spiritual problems. You need to be patient. You need to be apt to teach. Be gentle unto all men. Do not strive. And then finally, notice that verse 25 says, In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. You understand tonight that a sinning Christian is a walking contradiction. A sinning Christian is a walking contradiction. Christians should not sin, but we do. And when we do, we are not living up to our name, our calling as Christians, as followers of Christ. We are contradicting the message of the gospel with how we live. It doesn't mean we lose our salvation. It just means that we're not living consistently with it. And when you're helping someone in a spiritual problem, whether it's behavior or belief... They are a walking contradiction. And you need to understand that, that you're dealing with someone who is opposing themselves. And so it's going to take meekness on your part to work with them and not write them off and get frustrated and give up and say, just forget it, deal with it yourself. You can't do that. You need to stay meek as you work with them. And here's the importance of meekness especially. Meekness protects you from getting harmed in the process, look over in Galatians 6, Galatians 6 for a moment. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 and verse number 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. In a spirit of, what's that next word? Meekness. In a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Here's the danger when helping someone else through a spiritual problem. There's a great danger that you might become arrogant. You might begin to look down on this person. You might think that they are somehow inferior to you because they're struggling with this problem and you are not. Be careful. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And the thing that will protect you from getting harmed in the process of helping another person spiritually is to stay meek. To realize, you know what? I'm just as susceptible to sin as they are. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is when you keep your strength under control. And that's important as you help someone through a spiritual problem. I read this statement somewhere. It really helped me. It said, if you help someone out of a puddle, you might get splashed with mud. Have you ever thought about that? When you're trying to help someone spiritually, there may come a point where some of their struggle is directed towards you. Let me give you an example. Let's say someone is just um, habitually guilty of gossip and it's causing discord, it's, it's, it's causing dissension in the body of Christ, and, and you take it upon yourself to try and help this person in Christ-like rebuke. And you go to them and you say, look, this is a problem. You're, you're going around, you're talking about people, it's, it's, it's separating friends, it's causing divisions in, in the church, and you really shouldn't be doing that. And you try to help this person. You know what might happen? They may turn around and stop gossiping about you. What are you going to do at that point? Are you going to lose your temper? Well, then you're going to be guilty of striving, arguing, and fighting. You're going to throw up your hands and give up and say, forget it. Well, then you're not being patient. No, what you need to do is you need to understand what's actually going on here is you got close to the problem, you got close to the puddle, and a little bit of it splashed on you. That's okay. Just wipe it off and keep going, keep doing what you know you should do. Don't lose your temper. Keep your attitude in check. Keep your strength under control. That's meekness. That's meekness right there. Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. Numbers 12, verse number 3. But was he a weakling? Not at all. His meekness, I think, was on the best display in Exodus 32 and verse 31. It says that Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Now, if thou wilt forgive their sins. And then he stops. And then he goes on, And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. You ever thought about that? Moses went to God on the behalf of the people who had rebelled against Moses' leadership, who had said, We're going to make our own gods. We're going to do what we want to do. They had totally turned against all of those commandments that in Exodus chapter 20 they had received. Now in Exodus 32, they're sinning against just about every single one of them. And what does Moses do? He goes to God and says, Lord, please forgive them. And if you won't forgive them, then don't forgive me anymore. Folks, that's meekness right there. Truly wanting what is best for the other person. Paul's example, it was in Romans 9 and verse number 3 when he said, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That was their heart. That was their attitude. I want more than anything else for that person to be right with God. That's the approach. So notice with me number two, the aim. The aim. What is our goal here in solving spiritual problems spiritually? What are we we hoping for? What are we shooting for? Well, verse 25 and verse 26 tells us what that is. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Let me give you the summary of what our aim is. Our aim is recovery through repentance. Recovery through repentance. That's what we're shooting for. We patiently teach the truth so that person might recover through repentance. Now, the second half of verse 25 and verse 26, there's a lot here to unpack. But what I want you to understand as we begin to look at this is that the point is not about you winning an argument with this other person. It's not about you establishing that you're a spiritual superior. Your goal ought to be not that you want to be right, but that you want that other person to be right with God. That ought to be our goal. Now, I want to take verses 25 and 26, and I want to kind of reverse engineer this. I'm the kind of guy, I like to know how things work. So when I was a kid, that meant taking things apart, right? When you're you're a seven-year-old boy, and you want to know how the radio works, you take it apart. That's just what you do. And maybe you can get it back together, or maybe your dad has to do it for you. Well, let's, let's, let's reverse engineer. Let's take this apart so we can understand what's happening here. So look at the end of verse 26. There's a statement here. Who are taken captive by Him at His will? So talking about people who are in sin or have wrong beliefs. They are taken captive by the devil, that's the hymn here, at the devil's will. The first thing I notice about this, did you know that the devil has a will for you? We talk a lot about God's will for our life. Doing God's will. Did you know the devil has a will for you? And the devil has a will for every Christian. And you know what that will is? Destruction. Pain. Misery. Ultimately, he wants to reduce the amount of glory that God gets from your life by getting you to sin and believe lies. That's his Will. First Peter five eight. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walking about, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. That's what Satan wants to do. That's his will. And even Jesus looked to Peter and said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. That's Satan's will. Don't be naive. Satan has a will for you. He wants to ruin your life. He is walking about seeking if he can devour you. That's his will. So to accomplish that will, notice what he does. Who are taken captive by him. And notice the phrase before that. Recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. How does he accomplish this will of destruction? He lays traps for us. He lays traps in the form of temptations and lies. That's what Satan does. He just scatters traps everywhere, all around us. I mean, literally, it's like walking through a spiritual minefield living in this world today because everywhere around us are all kinds of spiritual traps. Lies and deceit and temptations everywhere. Satan is trying to use to ensnare us, to take us captive according to his will. That's why Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wile there means a craftiness or a trickery. It's kind of like a fisherman's going to use a lure to try and catch the fish. You don't usually catch a lot of fish with a bare hook. You've got to put some bait on it. You want to tr- trick the fish into biting the hook and swallowing it. And so this is what, that's what Satan does. In order to accomplish His will, He lays traps for us. So now, go back to our verse here. We're backing up through this. Satan's will is to destroy us. He accomplishes that will by laying traps for us. And the person that has gotten away from the truth, that is living in sin, has fallen into Satan's snare. When a person chooses to sin or to believe a false doctrine, they are falling for Satan's traps. Now let me be clear in the language I'm using here. It is 100% that person's fault for choosing to sin. But they have fallen for the devil's deceit. You remember the story of Job, right? In Job chapter 1, Satan is standing before God. And there's this interesting interview that takes place. And God asked Satan if Satan had considered God's servant Job. Have you ever realized that? It was God that brought Job up in that conversation. And Satan answered the Lord, Job 1.9, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? <clears throat> thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land." But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. What was Satan hoping to do? He was hoping to trap Job. He was hoping that if, if, if God would remove his hand of blessing and Job would be able to aff- or, or, or Satan would be able to afflict Job, that Job would turn on God. And so his will was to destroy Job. Thankfully, God had a better plan. And through that process... Job was made even better. But the trap aspect of that trial was Satan's doing. This person who is in sin and believing lies is ensnared. They're in a trap. And the thing about a trap is a good trap is hard to get out of, right? I mean, if it's easy for the animal to get loose, then it's not a very good trap. nature of a trap is it's hard to get out of. And so in order to get something or someone out of a trap, it requires assistance. Well, that's where we come in. That's the essence of exhortation. Hebrews 3.13, "...but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin." The word exhort literally means to come alongside someone for the purpose of assisting them and helping them. Do you know what's what we're supposed to be doing for one another? To Come alongside someone. Imagine if you were, uh, say, taking a walk down the road, and on one side of the road there was a deep ditch, and as you were walking along, you heard someone calling out for help, and you looked over, and down in the ditch, somebody has fallen, and they have broken their ankle. They need help. They need to get out of that. What's the best way for you to help them? Well, I suppose you could just stand up there and say, hey, you know what? You really shouldn't be down in that ditch. That's, that's not a good place for you to be. I would encourage you to climb up here. You could do that. But how effective would it be? Probably not very effective. The best way to help them is going to be to get down to them some way. To go down and get alongside them and physically help them out. That's the word exhort. It's not standing up on our spiritual mountain peak and saying, you shouldn't be down there. It's going down and helping them up. And the person who's in a snare doesn't need somebody to come along and say, you know what, you shouldn't be in that snare. They need somebody that's going to come along and say, let me help you out. Let me help you out of it. But Hebrews 3.13 adds this, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin... There's a truth that gets overlooked in that verse that a failure to exhort can result in someone's heart being hardened. I've seen this so so many times in ministry, and I know many of you have too. A person goes through a hard time. Maybe you've experienced this. You've gone through a hard time, and it seems like nobody noticed. It seems like nobody cared. It seems like nobody wanted to help. What does it do to that person? They feel lonely, they feel isolated, they feel ostracized, and they will become hard-hearted as a result. And people walked away from church and said, why, do I, why am I even bothering going to church? If that's how they're going to treat me when I'm having such a hard time, don't be the reason someone else's heart was hearted. Exhort them. Now, we go back to our text. Notice that, that first expression there. After our responsibility to instruct, it says, If God, peradventure, would grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Here's the fact. You and I cannot rescue that person. Only God can. But you and I can be the tools that God uses to help rescue that person. See, it's not our work that's going to accomplish anything for them. It's not our wit. It's not our anything. We are just the tools. God does the work. But we want to be accessible for God to use us because here's the goal. We want to see that person acknowledge the truth. We want to see them change their mind. Lies have been believed. They need the truth to release them from the trap. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so our goal and our ultimate aim is that they will see the truth, that they will believe the truth and that they will live according to the truth. That's the work that God does in their heart. Now for that to happen, there must be repentance. They've been believing a lie. They have to believe the truth. They've been going in the wrong direction. They have to go in the right direction. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. And God is works in someone's life to bring them to the point of repentance. That is God's work. Repentance is not a work, understand. It is a work that God does in us, but we have a responsibility to yield to that work. When God says, here's the truth, we decide whether we believe it. When God says this is the right way, we decide whether or not we go that way. And our goal should be to be the instrument God uses to bring them to that point of repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul said, Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. We want to see this person, repent. And you know what? In that process, they may be sad. Sometimes they need to be sad because they've been sinning. They've been believing lies and it's caused a lot of problems. They ought to be sad about that. But we don't approach them to make them sad. We approach them to give them the truth so that they might recover. Our aim is to be the instruments that God can use to rebuke that erring brother or sister and teach them the truth. You know, sometimes these kinds of things take place in a formal setting. A specific meeting called for a specific purpose. But you know, many times these kinds of encounters are more informal. That as we interact with one another, as we build relationships with one another, we have opportunity to address issues that may come up. And it doesn't have to be a big deal. It can be a simple thing, brief conversation, slight adjustment, and we go on with life. Sometimes, however, they are big issues that need to be addressed in a big way. But many times they're just little things that we need to be willing to help someone who is ensnared by the devil. I look at this passage and I I think really a good way to sum it up is this. There can be no recovery without repentance. And there will be no repentance without rebuke. That loving Christ-like confrontation of the sin. One more passage before we close tonight. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Again, we just we have this, this idea that, that rebuking someone is harsh and it's, it's unkind and it's, it's the opposite of love. Because our world tells us if you love someone that, you know, you'll just accept them for however they are, whatever they want to do, whatever they want to say, however they want to be. If you love them, you'll accept them for how they are. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't accept me for how I was. He didn't look at me as a sinner that was doomed to hell and say, well, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to let him, I'm going to love him to hell. No, that's not what God did. God said, I love him enough that I'll change him. I love him enough that I'll send my son Jesus to die on the cross for his sins. I love him enough so that he can place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he can be saved and he can become a new creature. And I love him enough so that he can be sanctified and he can grow into the image of Christ. I love him enough not to let him stay the same. Revelation chapter 3, look with me at verse number 19. The Bible says, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Of the seven churches that the Lord wrote to in Revelation 2 and 3, five of them had sins that needed to be addressed. And all five of them, the Lord Jesus Christ told them, repent, repent, And Jesus says, it's because I love you that I rebuke you so that you might repent, so that you might recover. That's the way to solve spiritual problems spiritually. It's confronting error with patient teaching so that God can use it to bring a person to a point of repentance and they might recover. Heads bowed and eyes closed. In just a moment, we're going to have a hymn of invitation. But I want to ask you two questions, and I want you to honestly consider these in your heart. The first question is this Will you be willing to help others with their spiritual problems? I'm not asking you to identify a specific one right now and make a commitment that you're going to do something specific in some time frame. I'm just asking you tonight, will you be willing? Will you be willing to be that tool, that instrument that God uses to help someone else out of the snare of the devil? Whether it's in the context of a marriage or a parent-to-child relationship or just a friendship with brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever it might be, will you be willing? That's my first question. Here's my second question. Very important. Will you be willing to accept someone else's help? You know what I find? That often we're very willing to offer help, very unwilling to accept it. And this only works when the person who's in the trap accepts the help? If that was you, if that is you, will you be willing to accept the help? If you would say yes to those questions tonight, then here's what I want to invite you to do. My wife's going to play number 464. The song is Nothing Between My Soul and the Savior. And as she plays, if you would say yes to those questions, don't say yes to me. Go to God in prayer and say yes to God. Say, yes, Lord, I will be willing to help others. And I will be willing to accept help so that the spiritual problems we face might be solved through repentance and recovery.